Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. I'm also the Managing Director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the Sendcast is simple. We want to reach lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, we're discussing mental health and behaviour. Is it nature or is it nurture? What are the risks and how can we help children to build resilience? I'll be discussing this with one of my regular guests, Finton O'Regan. Finton has been a head teacher, lecturer for Leicester University, and now works as a trainer consultant for schools and school support systems. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We help show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. And we help schools show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you are a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where a pupil isn't making progress, we can help. Did you know you can also use B Squared assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me and let me take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing mental health and behavior. Is it nature or is it nurture? What are the risks and how can we help children to build resilience? My guest this week is one of our regulars, it's Finton O'Regan. As always, I've got a long list of what Finton's accolades. He is a trainer, consultant for schools and school support systems, including social services, health, the police and foster carers. In his previous life, he worked in a number of organisations, including Nason, Institute of Education, Leicester University, the UK ADHD Network and the European ADHD Alliance. And in another life before this, he was a head teacher at a specialist school for students with ADHD, ASD and ODD. Welcome to the show, Finton. Thank you, Dale. Thanks for having me back. So mental health and whether it is nature versus nurture is an argument that's been going on for years and will continue for years. I personally feel nature gives us a seed and then the nurture and environment has an impact on how much that blooms. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good way of starting off the conversation. My degree, I know you've said I've done a lot of things and thank you for mentioning all of them, but uh, my degree actually was zoology and genetics. And I suppose when I did that degree, genetics was the more, I suppose, exciting thing because it was very new at the time as a topic and we were all talking about you know, what we inherit and things like genes. And so you go to university and you're talking about genes and some says, well, it's not such a really thing as a gene, it's a piece of chromosome. So that takes it down a notch, you know, the excitement. And then it's usually any, you know, sort of any characteristic is really two or three different pieces of chromosomes. So you're thinking, hang on a minute. Anyway, so that's interesting. You're piecing it together, mapping it together and stuff. Then when someone was saying, but it's really the kind of environment that, you know, really kind of, determines whether or not these pieces generate a reaction. So there are certain characteristics that we know, eye colour and skin colour and things like that, which are genetic. But there are other characteristics that we have, which might be more to do with behaviour, which appear to have some predisposition, but doesn't necessarily, doesn't always, you know, doesn't always exhibit itself because obviously that the environment will determine whether those genetic material pieces are switched on or not switched on. So what's interesting is uh, my wife done one of those DNA things, you know, we all do them, how many brothers and sisters do I actually have? But I found out from doing that, that having a monobrow is genetic. So my wife has a low chance of having a monobrow, which I'm quite relieved at. She hasn't just been shaving it the entire time. She just doesn't have one. So it was quite fascinating on this full list of all these things that they can say are or aren't going to happen. But then if you go to that nurture thing where you go, well, actually, it's lots of nurture and I'm not that well educated in this world. But there's a thing that you have to hear certain sounds by a certain age to be able to pronounce them. And whether this is urban myth or not, but that's why I always got told that often people from Asia, Far East, struggle with the R sound because it's not used in their language, therefore they don't hear it, therefore they struggle to say it. And you could probably turn around and say that that is very much a nurture thing. It's a social thing, it's a language thing. And I suppose because you cannot see things like autism and ADHD, you can't, they're saying, well, 
Is that this thing where it is coming in later, it's coming from nowhere, or is it part of that genetics? Yeah, you're right. Our behavior is such a, it's such a different thing to, I suppose, assess as opposed to eye color or skin color or to a certain extent height and those kind of physical attributes because it's what might be seen as traditional in some settings is seen as slightly is seen as unusual or more unusual than norm in, in other settings. And I suppose that in terms of your examples on speech, if we all have the potential to obviously make sounds, but how those sounds are described and when they're realized and how they're interpreted is very much going to be based, I suppose, on, on the environment or the nurture that you are involved with. Definitely. I, th- I think, I've done a, again, a reading, I think we identified all the different genes now. Taken Finton in quite a while. He's been his personal thing. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't me. I was, uh, that was uh, 80. I think it was a lot of people doing a lot of work. But actually, Sheffield University, where I was uh, in the 80s, was actually one of, the, uh, one, of, one of the most significant universities in the country at that time in the field of genetics. And uh, so there's many of my colleagues, I'm sure, who, who will be attributed to that, as well as Watson and Cricker did a good job as well. So I suppose the only right way to really answer nature versus nurture is kind of not a nice thing to do because you've basically got to somehow identify some children very early on as being autistic and then completely split them up in different environments and things like that. There was a really interesting documentary on Netflix about triplets in America who were separated at birth. I don't know if you've seen this documentary. So the way it was delivered on Netflix was really interesting. It's about this boy who went off to college in another state, arrived at college, and he literally is there on his first day. And somebody just looks at him weirdly and goes, why are you here? And he's going, I've never met you. And he goes on. And you find out that everyone thinks he's someone else. And he's arrived at this college and apparently someone who looked just, has just left. And they're going, no, this is the same boy. It's the same man. And they're going, they think it's a prank. But then they got the photos out. And it literally looks like they're going, okay, this is not right. We've got to meet up. And they were both adopted at a young age. So there's these two of them. And then it goes on and they're trying to do some research. And then somebody in a completely different part of America is reading this thing and reading it going, hang on, that looks like my friend. There's three boys who were completely separated. And basically they were research subjects. They were separated at birth. They were put into families with older siblings Mm. and monitored. Mm. Were they identical? Identical. And then they went on TV shows in America. They've got all the footage of these going out. So do you all smoke? Yes. What do you all smoke? Oh my God, you all smoke. It's absolutely fascinating. They also realized there's very different. They had 10, 20 differences. Mm. So it's 10 similarities. They had hundreds of differences. Mm. And, I think to me, that's the only real way to answer nature versus nurture, but somehow you have to identify the moment of birth, is this child autistic or not, which we can't really do. Yeah, we can't. And I suppose a lot of those areas will will be done on twin or triplet studies. And, you know, I haven't seen that particular show, but I think it does appear that while you have, you might look similar and you have the same genetic makeup, I'm understanding that even though you might have the same genetic makeup, there are still different arrangements of that makeup which still give you individuality in 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 certain ways, although you'll be more you'll be more similar than non-identical twins, for example, would be. Yeah. But I still believe there is variation. I, I think I read this on the radio, I heard this on a radio show about how there's nobody who's exactly the genetic makeup isn't exactly the same in terms of its sequence, apparently. I think that's right. I don't know if it's... But it's also little, tiny little things. I think we talked about before that if an event happens to a two-year-old and a nine-year-old, they'll take completely different things from that situation. Yeah, yeah. And if you're the youngest by two minutes and your other older by two minutes brother is holding it over you, that's have a, that would have an impact on you. And you just, all those little things can really shape two different people. I mean, there's no doubt that you know, you are a, an open vessel when you're first born. There's obviously some tendencies. There's some physical things that will be similar, but you will obviously be learning what's around you. You know, babies, for example, they, when they're young, they, they cry when they need to be changed and they need to be fed. They know that 
by crying, they get a reaction. I'm told that if babies get a negative reaction the first six months of their life, they learn not to cry because, you know, the reaction that might take place. Now that's a, it's a six months. Wow. So people are picking up, you know, babies are picking up those nuances very early on in life. So people will obviously be adapting uh, to what they see around them. And even when they're very, you know, in the sort of early maturation stage. They talk about, do you do that whole controlled crying thing, going back a long time ago of letting them cry and they'll cry themselves. They are an open bed, so they learn from an early age. You're learning as a parent as well. Bringing it back to things like autism and ADHD, nature versus nurture. And there's been speculation, which is completely wrong, that it's certain vaccines causing autism and things like that. And we didn't have autism 20 years ago. There wasn't ADHD 20 years ago, but it's now everywhere. Why would that be, Finn? Well, I think that the, there's lots of people out there doing lots of, I suppose, research and theories about you know, why there seems to be, as you say, this uh, tsunami of people with ADHD and autism. And I think I don't think, I think the vaccines thing was, was unproven in the end. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, so that was sort of, uh, I suppose, thrown out of court, so to speak. I think there's two things, isn't there? Number one is that we've always had people who were different. I get this question all the time. You know, I get this question, does ADHD really exist? And I have to say, well, I hope it does. I've written seven books on, on the issue. But the other one is that where was it when I was growing up? I didn't have anyone you just didn't call it that. You just said that the person that has these characteristics that we describe now underneath that was from the Jenkins family. You've always, we've always labelled people. We just haven't labelled them in any kind of proactive way. You know, it was in a negative way. You were saying, oh, they're all like that. They were all a bit odd. You probably weren't, weren't wrong because they were different from what you have. So I think now we've just got a better understanding. We're not saying people are from the Jenkins family. We're analysing their traits. We are analysing their behaviours. We are constructing a way of describing them as they fit a pattern of which autism might be one set of pattern you might describe and, and ADHD as another. And when people say to me, does ADHD, my answer really is right now it's the best way of describing a group of traits that can't be better explained by any other reason. And that's pretty true for, for autism as well. If someone comes along in the future and says it's be, this is a better ex- explanation of why this person is different and, and thinks in that way, then I think we should obviously be open to that as well. But I think we're just better able to recognise it. We're not critical of people in the way that we used to be in the past. We're more sensitive and we are more thoughtful and I think proactive in identifying what is neurodivergent. If you look back, there are various uh, cohorts of people that we would literally either people just point at and go weird or things like that. And if you think of train spotters. Yeah, 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 exactly. They, they, they've been around for quite a while. Or plane spotters. I used to live near Heathrow growing up and like, who's that? Who, what those people doing down there and, and such and yeah, such? And if you went with a diagnosis and you could go through them all, you'd probably, get, you'd probably hit quite a few things. If we think of hoarders. Yeah, well, I do that as a, as a game and one of my courses really about people who, uh, who hoard stuff and where they might be. And, you know, and in, we've all got tendencies to do things, but I always say, you know, who's holding on to keys of houses they no longer own? Who's holding on to money of currencies that no longer exist? Who's holding on to instruction pamphlets of toasters and vacuum cleaners? If you are, they need to go to the charity shop or to the dump. But you get some people who, for whatever reason, as you say, will hoard, will be obsessive about certain things which are outside of what you would call a neurotypical person or neurodiverse person might do. And those are characteristics. You know, they're not, they're, they're not, they're not harmful. But in some cases, if someone is, is hoarding, you know, newspapers, you know, free newspapers that come through every week, with the view that they might want to reread them again and is continuously doing that and it's taking up space and then it's, it starts being over a, a month, then it becomes over a year, then it becomes over 20 years. And there has been some examples of people who have done it. That's not a healthy situation to be in. And that it gets to a point at which it trips into another category from just being someone who just wants to read, you know, whichever tyre company they might use one day 
to somebody who then can't throw things away. And then that's that's more of an issue. I, I think if you generally, if you think in your life, you will just generally think of some people who were a little bit odd. There was, uh, when I remember growing up in the first house I lived in, which I moved, I moved out when I was five or six, there was a lady who lived up the end of the road who was called the mayoress. She wasn't the mayor, she wasn't the mayoress. But every time she turned into the road, she hit her horn. It was a cul-de-sac and all the kids went running and she just flew up that road, parked and drive and walked in. And most of the parents in the road didn't like her. And that could be for many reasons. And you just, oh, it would just be, but it could be autism. It could be. It, well, it, it, it's, it's different. It's a difference, isn't it? It's a difference yeah. from the norm. And we know that people who have, you know, ASC, ADHD, they tend to be different. And because they're different, we're concerned about why they're sometimes. We're intrigued by it other times, but it stands out. And so the argument that these are new conditions, they might be called something different, but they're not new conditions. They're not new traits. It hasn't been one or three or four things that have generated this huge numbers of people with this. It's just they've always been there. And we do have mild, moderate, and severe. You might argue, I suppose, that in some generations it was the severe symptoms that stood out versus now we are looking at the mild and moderate. You could argue that's some differences. But we want to improve things in the way we've improved things like health and, you know, we've improved things like the quality of life for people who have some other sort of maybe physical disabled. We want to get better at, you know, at helping and preventing mental health and to help people a better quality of life. So if we're doing it in physical ways, we should also be doing it in, you know, in, in non-physical ways in mental health and behaviour. Also, if we think about, you've talked about bullicide on the podcast and um, suicide in terms of autism. So there aren't going to be as many older people because of suicides. But also, I'm, one of the things I had is, is homeless people. You sometimes you see them on the news. And again, I'm only going by what I've seen on the news. I've no personal experience, but they sit there and they had a falling out with their parents or something and they just couldn't go back. And I wonder how much of that is kind of, kind of an autism. They've got a rule that happened. I can't forgive them. I'm done. I've got to move on. How much of that is because they use their autism or something. So I'd be interested on that sort of thing of how many people living homeless could be identified with ASC, ADHD, or something like that, which kind of when that happened, they perceived it one way, which was not how the other person perceived That would be an interesting idea to find out those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I think if anyone is homeless or has that experience, it's obviously been something that hasn't gone in a traditional way in their life, and it could be something innate. It could have been something, you know, in the environment, or in most cases, I think it's probably a bit of both, you know, I mean, to go back to the question, is it nature? Is it nurture? I think sometimes it, it probably is nature. I think sometimes there are ways in which it is nurture. If you haven't had good experiences as a child and ha- hasn't been attachment and things like that. I think in most cases, it's a combination of the two. I think that's what you would say, but there's lots of other examples of people for whom things haven't gone a traditional way as well. But you're right. Homelessness is a, is one that I hadn't really thought about, but you know, it's obviously something that's, uh, prevalent in you know every city and every area, and there's obviously been a disconnect with that person's timeline in terms of you know just say having accommodation and having a roof and having shelter and having some structure, with them not having been able to have that that one of the most basic things that we would like to keep ourselves safe in life, which is somewhere to go to on a regular basis in order to rest and to sleep and to feel safe. Yeah, so if we think about the people in our lives, older people, you literally can go, they're a bit odd, they're a bit odd. The blokes who always always sits at the bar in the pub in the same seat, drinking out the same tankard and things like that, you would have just go, oh yeah, it's just Jim, it's the way he is. And you're going, but actually is there something that we would now call autism, which might be mild? Well, we again, as you say, I think you've put the nail on the head. I think we've, the language, we've always had people different. The language has changed. He or she that you're talking about would be called odd or eccentric. You know, there could be other phrases that, you know, that people use to describe people who are different. And it's true also right now when we talk about people who we say, oh, they're, they're either precocious, you know, or they're not mature. But what you're basically saying is they're not at the same stage 
as their age expectant behavior or how they react to certain situations. So, and as you know, that, you know, I view this as slightly differently from being a deficit. I view this as a developmental difference. So I think whether you're immature, whether you're precocious, the language is, is different, but developmental difference, I think is more useful than saying immature and precocious. Then we can work towards how we can support, you know, to narrow the gap, if you like, and then to enhance it in, you know, in, in the sort of more advanced skills you have. So you do a lot around behavior exclusions and neurodiversity. So off the top of your head as a rough kind of number or give me an answer. Are pupils with ADHD, ASE more likely to be excluded in a mainstream school than a specialist school? Yes, is the answer to your question. I think they're more likely to be We've done a whole series of talks on this about how the biggest reason for uh, permanent exclusion and fixed-term exclusion is not drugs or violence. It's something called persistent disruptive behaviour. And that's the main reason for fixed-term exclusions. It's also the main reason for permanent exclusions. And in order to get a permanent exclusion, you have to have a number 45 days or fixed-term exclusions, which, you know, I've made this point before, if the second fixed-term doesn't work, how is the fourth or fifth term going to work? By the way, the language is changing on this now because it's becoming so often that it, people are starting to call it for fixed term effects and, and for permit solutions, they were calling it PEXs. And you know, you've got, you've got a problem when you've got an acronym for something. So actually fixed term exclusions have now gone back to suspensions again. That's the official language now. So maybe that means that permit exclusion is going to go back to expulsions. So yes, because you're different, you will stand out in a mainstream school uh, and you're more likely, therefore, at risk to have issues of, of learning and behavioural and socialisation issues. So you're more at risk. There are other factors as well, which need to go in there, but SCN's a very high one. In a special school, there'll be, obviously, it's a slightly different environment. You are probably there because you have one or other or conditions or overlapping traits. So therefore, you will usually find those both the systems and the people working there are better able to adapt to those sorts of issues. So I would say that, you know, that the difference is very, to answer your question directly, much more likely in a mainstream school than a specialist school. It'll probably come as no surprise that I'm a fan of, of specialist schools alongside mainstream schools, because as I said, you get people there who want to work with people who are different and the systems are more adaptable and more flexible to meet their needs. So next question, I'll come on to the reason why I'm asking this. Is a child with ADHD or ASE more likely to be excluded in a primary school or a secondary school? At this time, secondary schools are much more prevalent to and higher in terms of the rates of exclusion in both fixed and permanent. Primary schools have pretty much been fairly even over the last few years. They've gone up a little bit, but it's been secondary school where the problem's really taken place. Can you now order... Secondary, specialist, and primary in order of nurture. Oh, I see where you're going now. Okay, yeah, he's kept this, <laughs> kept this from me. He's kept this back, hasn't he? And uh, his reasoning and his rationale all become too apparent right now. He'd be a good card player, wouldn't he, really? I would have been suckered in right now. Yeah, okay. So it, I don't need to really answer the question. I think you know so what it is. specialist might be the most nurturing? I would say, it, you know, I would, depending on the specialist school, I would think you get people there who choose to work with children who are, have learning differences. So because of that, you would, get, you would certainly get a higher level, if you like, really, of pastoral willingness to be working with children of these. So, yes, I think so. But it does depend on, you know, not all schools will, will conform to that. But I can tell you as a head of a specialist school, I can just go off piece to hear myself a little bit. I knew the first minute of an interview where I was going to employ somebody. And one of the best things about being a head is you get to choose the people you work with. If I had got to the point where my secretary would tell me whether I was going to employ this person before I even met them, because, you know, it wasn't the fact they had technical skills in, in SCN, but they had a personality that meant that they were right for the sort of students we have. So, yes, I think that would, yes, that would be, you know, one and then primary. So primary, I'd say, is probably not far behind specialists because it's that teacher with them for a whole year. Yeah, I mean, you know, it depends on the teacher. You don't always find, I mean, the idea of, the, like, there's, there's a slight myth that secondary school is always, because you've got nine different teachers and 
I mean, so that, that is more of a risk factor. But if you have a teacher that, that themselves in primary has Aspergic features and they're meeting someone else and you've got them all the time, then as you can tell, that year four, year five might not be your best year. But you will generally find that children find that environment to be far more, you know, that person, there's more of a connection, isn't there, between the person versus, the, you know, it's not about nine different subjects and things. So basically, where we're going quite obviously is the better the nurture, the better the outcomes for that child. However, you can't straight from the going, well, well, let's go for a specialist school because that's not really the most effective. It is each of those schools is, is different for a reason, but that secondary school is the least nurturing because it's a treadmill pushing people yeah. through. I mean, it's got harsher. Sorry, I mean, sorry for bashing yeah, secondary schools, yeah, but yeah, it's kind of, yeah. it's not the individuals I'm bashing, it's the system, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, uh, this will be no surprise again to your listeners that, you know, I've said for some years, the Every Child Matters ship had sailed some, you know, through four or five years ago. And we've had a regime which has been that, you know, that the few should not affect the rights of the many. That's been very much the policy, particularly of those in charge of, behavior in our schools. And so therefore, a lot of schools have seemingly adopted that approach. Not all schools, of course, not all heads, not all, uh, not all um, academy chains or whatever or operations, but that it's got harsher, I think. And I mean, one of the things we used to have, whether, you know, it's costly, but a lot of these things are seen as like costly, but they're not, they're actually investment in the future. We used to have a lot of nurture programs. So a lot of students, I mean, that jump from primary to secondary is huge. The biggest jump you ever make bigger than going from secondary or from, you know, fifth form or year 11 to sixth form or even to work. You're going from, as you said, one class, one teacher, nurturing environment to nine different bigger buildings, the whole thing. It's too big for some individuals who developmentally aren't ready for that. And in year seven and year eight, we used to have these nurture groups for children that hadn't had that, that, that what you say, that more traditional nurturing pastoral upbringing, both at home uh, you know, additionally to needs at school. And that was seen as too costly, but I think it, it was a really important bridge. And a really good friend of mine, Professor Paul Cooper, was involved with setting up some of those things in the 90s and the early 2000s. And, uh, and I think it's something that, that really, really helped bridge the gap. They weren't ready for the full experience. They needed to be brought in more gradually. So that nature is really important. And you can say with bad nurture that seed really blooms. Yeah, if that person isn't being supported. But that's the same with any person. Yeah, if you're in a relationship and it's not going well, it goes downhill, it blooms. So nurture, personally, I would say is not the cause. Yeah, it's got to be there in the first place. Yeah, something's got to be there right at the beginning. If we go back to that nature and think about things, and I think Joe Grace has mentioned on a previous podcast that Often when a neurodivergent person walks into a room, the person they connect with will be another neurodivergent person. Yeah, then, yeah, they're the person who gets them, accepts they're going to be quiet at times and more, more accommodating of differences and might be very similar and have a lot of things in common. I think, I think particularly when they're younger, I think that is true. I think when they're older, I'm not sure it's quite as true. Not maybe in a work sense when they're older, but maybe not as much in a social setting. But I think particularly when they're younger, that is true. You do tend to graduate the people who all like Star Wars, all have a particular interest in a certain area, which might be seen as a little bit off the beaten track, you know, yeah. whether or not it's, uh, it's computers or whether it's Pokemon or whether it's, you know, some other area. So I think people tend to group towards people who did it. When I went to school, there was the sort of the wall of going in and there were the, um, it was like, I was a bit of a, I was both sporty, but I liked music. So I was able to traverse both territories, so to speak, but there was yeah. the wall where all the rockers sat on and none of the sporty guys, you know, sort of sat with the rockers, you know, and none of the rockers really sat with the sporty guys. And it was that kind of, you know, they all liked the heavy metal and they were all seen by the sporty guys would call them names. And of course they called the sporty guys jocks and things yeah. like that. And I happen to be a bit of both. I just so happen to like music and I like to, I like sports. So, you know, I found myself sort of, you know, but I was, it was interesting because I wouldn't, 
obviously actively be involved with the criticism of either group because I was involved in both groups. But I think there's a natural progression towards the areas of interest. And, you know, we will, you know, label people that. If you ever watch was the St. Trinian's film, they label all sorts of factions within that film, you know, where they label girls who have a certain interest as this and certain girls and interest as that. So, you know, I think school can be... And it's good to be involved in a club, in one set. I suppose the idea is that certain people don't seem to fit into to any of them. And then that can be very isolationist. Well, I think as you get older, you often find someone who might have different interests, but it's their passion you love. Yeah. And yeah. you've got your passion for your thing. They've got their, and you can mutually understand, go, wow, what have you done? And it's that excitement. I think Joe Gray said that it's a neurodivergent, meeting that neurodivergent, having neurodivergent children kind of it's that nature thing is they're finding it and perhaps it's growing perhaps there are there are more of them finding each other and things like that i have no idea i think there's a couple of things there i think one as i was hinting before i think in my experience i do tend to find that as parents generally speaking when i used to meet the child i would then meet the parents and you say because in the old days what would happen is a parent meeting you'd go in um, you as a teacher you would meet the child first and then you would meet the parents maybe three months later at a parent meeting and you were probably saying to yourself, if child wasn't conventional, it's back in the 80s and 90s, it's probably something the parents didn't do. That's what we said in you, probably something the parents didn't do. Said that in Newcastle, but not in that accent because I can't do it. But when the parents came and you look at them and you go, aye, yeah, that, that would be a reason because you'd see one or both parents who had very similar traits. So you were right, but you weren't quite right in a very professional way of describing yes. it. But when I became a head, what would happen was I would often meet the parents first and then I'd meet the child and I'd meet the parents. And what I would find is that, you know, dad might be coming in, sitting down, after two minutes, he's looking out the window, he's fiddling at the blind and it's the mother who's looking intently at me. Now, you know, this is quite a big decision. And then I'd meet the child and he was a carbon copy of the dad, you yeah. know, and or in some cases it was the mum. So there is a sort of tendency, I used to think, to find that, what happened was that you don't often see, you can do, but often as an adult, I think if you're a North Pole, you don't, generally speaking, pick out another North Pole, not to marry at least. I think you tend to pick out a South Pole, someone who can do the opposite of what you do. So you can do your big pitch, someone else can do the other. And then the child will be obviously a combination of both, but usually will have certain characteristics of the other. In fact, often they will look like the other person, but have the other person's characteristics. That's what I found. And that's just a sort of an anecdote, really, from my work, particularly as a special school head. And, it, and it's interesting, if we go back to that nature versus nurture, so if we think of both the parents would have had different upbringings, different parenting styles, and their parenting style will probably be a combination yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, it's the old blueprint. No one gives you a, uh, you know, a pamphlet to bring up your child. You do it based, a lot of it, on what you experienced yourself and your own experiences uh, and, you know, in that setting. And, you know, if you're from a, I suppose you could argue if you are from a similar culture, it can narrow some of those variables down. But if you marry someone from a different culture, you know, then, then I suppose it, it adds to the variables, you know, because there might have been different climate. You grew up with it might have been a different time you went to school versus what you might do in this environment there might have been uh, more outdoor possibilities than indoor facilities and there's a whole range of things and then you've got the cultural diversity between whether or not you pick up and hug your kids or whether you are more formal about how you do that there's a whole you know there's a whole combination of things that you could add into that but generally speaking i think you don't copy your parents you hopefully you would learn from it and prove from it but i think you generally speaking if you've had a fairly a fairly what you call fairly stable upbringing you would tend to take quite a few elements of that i would think and transfer them yeah so and and you've also got the world changes and there's i think there's research which kind of i think it's like if, if your parents divorce the children are more likely to get divorced and things like that so there is that repeating pattern that goes on but it is it's difference, it's changing, it's merging things together. So, but you might have that parent who is quite obviously on the spectrum and then a child on the spectrum, but the parenting has been different. So the nature has to be in there to me. 
Yeah, it does have to be in there. And I think, you know, uh, any, the, the divorce is never an easy thing and it's never an easy thing for both the partners involved and it's never an easy thing for the children. Although I would say, you know, if anyone, and people sometimes say, oh, you know, maybe, you know, if you've got a child who hasn't actually been traditional, it's maybe your, it's no one's fault. It's the way it was. You did things based on the information you have at the time. And it's a much better environment for a child to be in a warm, loving, one parent relationship than it would be, or one person, than with two parents who are at war and who are everything else, because that, you know, that can cause more difficulties. I think there are certain, you know, environments a little bit like we've just described before, where if partners aren't able to cope with each other's traits, it probably adds to the risk of those, those partners being a couple. And then if the child is having to go to one or more, you know, one of, one of the parents for three days and staying with one for four days, then again, the variables increase in terms of the risk, in terms of the structure in one being different from one of the other. So therefore, they're not getting a continuity of parenting, if you like. Not saying that can happen in all families, but may happen that someone lets them stay up till 11 o'clock, someone lets them up till three in the morning, you know, and, and therefore that doesn't benefit, particularly when they're younger, I think doesn't benefit their overall development. But, you know, but I would just anecdotally again say sometimes the nurture and nature element is a combination. I'm a, talking of multiple births early on, you were talking about the triplets. I'm a, a parent of twins, twin boys, and they are non-identical, which is the question I have as well. But from day one, and they're 23 now, I can say that very much the innateness was evident. One has always been very half full and his brother is by contrast, pretty half empty. And we had them at the same time and we've had them during that period of time. So I can say as a, from a personal perspective that, you know, that nature has definitely played a part in their personalities. And maybe it's something that we didn't or didn't do, but I would say we pretty much gave them the same sort of pathways in which to look at. And yet they are as different now as they were when they were first born. But when and that difference is, so like, can you see like your humor in one of them and your wife's humor in the other? Is it things like that? Because that's why I find with my kids, I can, even though they're still quite young, I recognize definite traits, definite preferences that I've had that, again, nature or nurture, but I see it in them. Yeah, I think, I think what we tend to do is we tend to pick out the ones that we like in ourselves, that we like in them, and the ones that we don't like in ourselves, other people pointed out to us. So I think there's a little bit of that. But it is interesting. To, it's a little bit like looks, of how children look, because you know, what you might see, someone else will say, oh, he looks just like you. And someone else will say, oh, he looks just like the other one. So it's almost, it, people see different things in them as well. And there's another consistency in that, I think. There are some people who are carbon copies of their parents in terms of, as I say, they look like one and they have the actions of the other. That does come along, but often there's, it's 50-50. That's what the genes say. That's how it happens. There's 50-50. I know you talked about one set and one set. But it's fascinating, I think, how we can have children, I think, coming from the same environments and yet be so different. And having some of the same variables in terms of the nurture and yet be so different. And so you would have to say that nature is very much the sort of like the main, the main sort of promoter of that. Yeah. So I did, did a podcast with Alison Knowles on why we are the way we are and uh, Finton likes cricket. So do both your sons like cricket? Yes, they both like cricket. They, but they would probably given that to them as a sort of like a, an environmental pressure. <laughs> yeah. So there's no, there's no gene identifying likes cricket. No, there's no gene identifying like cricket, but they also like football. They also like rugby because they spent their first 11 years, 12 years doing that. Whereas now one of them still plays rugby and his brother is plays for the Great Britain international team, dodgeball. And there was no dodgeball gene at all in my or my wife's uh, sort of like background. But it's interesting because sometimes children will like something because if they like it, they get to spend time with their parents. But often that might be the thing they like, but it's given them something to go off and do something else. So yeah, there's a lot of, nat- there's a lot of nurture in there in terms of preferences and things like that. But if we go back to things like autism and ADHD, it is fundamentally a 
neurobiological difference? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there's still people out there who question that. I'm open, like, like you are, Dale, to other reasons for things. And I think people have been searching for years to look at things and, and, and you need to eliminate. And that's why an evaluation or an assessment should be comprehensive. It should be looking at environmental factors. It should be looking at the delivery, the pregnancy, that's sort of what happened during that period of time. You know, other factors, whether it's been, I mean, we know they're out there, whether it was some sort of lead toxins and things like that. There's obviously other factors there that, that can determine behavioral differences or you know, neurological differences. But I think you would say that, you know, you'd have to say the major driver of it is genetics, I think. So one of the things is, as you said, that often when you meet a child who is on the spectrum, you meet one of the parents and one of them or both of them are on the spectrum, and you kind of go, okay, that explains a lot. And I, I do think if a child is diagnosed, then there should be screening for the parents as well. Because some of those parents will say, oh, he's saying he's struggling with this, but yeah, we all struggle with that, don't we? And then, yeah, we can't do this. We all struggle with it. It's like, no, everyone else gets on with it, fine. You've just struggled with it for your entire life. I think you would have to make a very valid point there. It's not the case in all families, but I work with families as well as with schools. And what might seem uh, very obvious to you because of the way you were brought up or because of your nurture in terms of maybe boundaries, maybe at home of talking about a parent, might not be as obvious to a family who have never had that experience themselves from their own parents, so therefore were unable to translate it to their children. What is the norm for them is not the norm for everybody else. And again, and the other issue that who they may not have, not that they didn't ask anyone, they wouldn't have known what to ask because... For them, it hadn't been a, it hadn't been a question that, that occurred to them. And I suppose what I've learned over the years is never to be surprised on that area. And sometimes people do. And parents are also like children. If you have a parent session or, and you're talking to parents about stuff, if a parent thinks, A, they have to know the question to ask, so therefore they have to know what question, why would they ask it? And B, if they think it might be a silly question or a question that someone else might judge them, they won't ask it Yeah, because they will feel embarrassed by that which they feel they you know, that other people will know. So it can be a lonely place. And at the end of the day, who's the person who's most at risk here is, is the child. And if we put into the pot that children are only at school for 18% of the year, they're at home for 82% of the year, generally speaking, some of that is sleeping, you hope, then obviously with four-fifths of their time being spent away from school, the impact or non-impact of the parental support system is really very significant. Very significant. And you can imagine that if you, if you had two neurodiverse parents who've learned what works for them, bringing up a child, that will probably reflect what they like. So if they are a little bit antisocial, then they won't be doing all the social things with their child, and you're kind of helping that antisocialness bloom. Whereas... If you had the same parents bring up a non-neurodiverse child, they might appear because it's, it's, they're being taught certain ways or they're not being exposed to certain skills. And it'll be the same the other way around. If you had non-neurodiverse parents bringing up a neurodiverse child, you're probably, they'll be doing lots of things and some things they'll struggle with, but they might do it because it's expected of them. And, yeah, so it's a real, you can have a real interesting mix of some of it will make it there almost like, say that this, and again, it's got a word with correctly, but amplifies that behavior and makes it more of a challenge in the world down to the almost the child is masking subconsciously because no one else does this, and everyone else does it. You've got that real spectrum in between. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be extremely confusing, wouldn't it? You'd never quite know whether you needed to go left or right in some ways. So I think, you know, I think sometimes with parents, though, there's a tendency for us to try to, like we will with children, is to sort of get them to conform to what is the... Now, obviously, you know, if they're having the children eat fast food all night, you know, all day and go to sleep at three in the morning, there is a bit of nudging to take place. But, you know, in the end of the day, children do grow up in, in a house that will be different as long as their parents are caring and love them and care. And 
you know, I always say that no matter what, and you could have very different parenting styles and views on how you parent. And you've also got the influences of the in-laws coming in and this sort of thing. I can say a lot about that. But it's, I always say to parents, look, well, you need to be on the same page. And sometimes you need to agree to disagree because if you don't, this child will divide and quite, they'll be confused. Yeah. So the most important word really is, you know, I've got to keep saying it's structure, you know, having some consistency, but having flexibility as well. At the same time, always, you know, getting the communication as right as you can. And sometimes some parents do need to learn to bite their tongue at certain times. Sometimes some parents do need learn to learn to up their game, if you like, with taking some responsibility for, you know, for raising their child, you know, and I think, and as a parent, you know, you do need to not, you, you can't afford to be, you can be friendly, but you've got to be firm sometimes and you can't afford to be, to always want to be liked. It's not a democracy no. at this stage. It's a bit of a benign dictatorship. You know, you're a friendly leader. And a coach. And I think, but you do need to be on the same page as that. But if you say there's a variable, as you mentioned before, uh, I do think you need to identify them first of all, and, and obviously make it, make it feel as if you are working in the same direction on behalf of your child. It is just very complicated. And that's why this argument will never go away because you cannot prove it one way or another. Now you can't prove it. I suppose the only way of proving it as such is, as you say, in those experiments that you have with identical twins but even though or triplets whatever by the way if you ever have twins then what happens is just let you know you avail yourself of a self-support group it's called a multiple births group and you get people there who have going through the same experiences of yourself particularly having twins or triplets as your first children it will be all hands to the pump and so one of the things they will advise you to do is to get involved in other families as you would do in other conditions but one of the things that helped us the most was going to the multiple births christmas party because when you go there, you see people with quads and quins and you come home and just feel thankful. <laughs> oh, I wasn't sure where that was going. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you sent me some information about a recent article, Mental Behaviour, which cited four risk factors. Yeah, it was, it's about 2018 now, and it's essentially a mental health and behaviour analysis. And it was basically saying that there was, in terms of the risk elements for children, in terms of behavior and mental health, there were four major risk factors or four sets of risk factors. Number one was in the child himself, and it was identifying some of these neurological issues we've been talking about today. The second set of risk factors was in the family, which was very much to do with the nature or nurture or lack of nurture, uh, lack of attachment uh, to a certain extent, whether or not there'd been it's a one parent or a two parent family, uh, other aspects within the parents of maybe alcoholism and things such as that. So those are major risk factors. And then the third set were in the environment, which was to do with socioeconomic issues, uh, which doesn't always mean, by the way, doesn't always mean that being rich means that it's not a risk factor, but it was basically saying you'd have less options. But it was a fourth set of risk factors. And this is the first time I'd seen a fourth set of risk factors identified in this in, with the other three. And those were issues to do with school. And the issues in school were about, it was identifying uh, you know, discrimination, uh, bullying, uh, lack of teacher empathy uh, and support, because that's the other fifth of the year in which children spend their time. So I thought it was interesting because I've always been, as you know, Dale, very much talking about learning behavior and socialization. It was that full set of risk factors in school. So Although we are looking at families, we're looking at, you know, and saying some of them should up their game, I believe. Some of them do, parents do need a little nudge, uh, not nagging, nudging in a direction. And therefore the environment, we can't always affect that, but we can certainly compensate for it. And, you know, there's no doubt we've done that with things like breakfast clubs and, you know, things like that, where we have identified certain kids aren't getting the nutrition and those sort of things. But it was just very interesting how they actually did or say that it was the fourth set were in schools. And so we can definitely do something about that and look at some of those risk factors and try to mitigate them. Anything else you want to add before we end? Well, the only thing I would add, that report then then does summarise after that. And it talks about the ways of supporting and minimising those risk factors, which is what they identify as resilience factors. And again, it will come as no surprise to you that those resilience factors are very much the sort of like the opposite of risk factors in that they identify within the child and uh, within the family 
uh, within the community and again within the school. And so I, th- I think the key element is to really identify as much as looking at the risk is to look at the suggestions, if you like, for developing resilience. And again, it's not going to be a, a big surprise to you that it's not inspiration, any of this. It's going to be perspiration. It's going to be a combination of structure, firm boundaries, you know, continuity, working in partnership with parents, going off piece every now and again in terms of helping and being flexible, particularly with things like organization in schools and in other aspects of homework, maybe helping work with the parents. It's all about communication, particularly for children that haven't had a particularly good experience with adults, relationships between the students, and then finally resilience, giving them the opportunity to therefore make their own, you know, to develop, if you like, those skills from the previous issues to support them through this this journey. It's well worth reading the report or looking at it. It's going to be in one of the, in, in some of the resources Dale will talk about. Again, you know, I think, as you say, uh, Dale, this debate will remain for many years to come. Definitely. So um, you've got two links here. Was it the Behaviour Mental Health from Centre for Mental Health? Is it that the document? Yeah. 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 So uh, Finton sent me uh, a number of useful links. They all, most of them seem to have uh, his name attached to them, which so he's probably written them or just nicked them or something and played them and plagiarised them. Uh, he's written them. And then we've got the Centre for Mental Health and uh, Mental Health and Behaviour in Schools 2018 from the government. Thank you for coming on the show today, Finton. Pleasure, Dale, as always. What we've tried, there's many people writing about this area. I think we've all got the same sort of direction. Just if people have different spins on them, I think. That's all I'm doing. Well, I just, I just think you've, you've got to think that seeds come from somewhere. And I think if we look back more, cause I had this conversation with my wife, and, and it's like, no, if we think about our pasts, there's just those couple of people who you said were a bit odd, a bit quirky, a bit different played by a different set of rules, you went, oh, yeah. And you just sit there. So it's not they've just suddenly appeared in the last 10 years. Very true. Always been here. Or as I said before, we just have called them different things. Uh, you know, schizophrenia some years ago, you were possessed by witches. And uh, uh, it, it wasn't a good outcome, by the way, either way. But what no. happened then? But so we've always identified people who were different. We just, I think, getting much more, much more specific about what the differences are and helping people, you know, realize their own potential when in the past we kind of judged them in a way that they didn't fit in our society, whereas we know that everyone can fit in our society given the right sort of direction and right, right, right support. I can go off a whole other topic on that, but I'm not going to. So thank you for coming to the show today, Finton. Really enjoyed it. So I've got all the links from Finton. They'll be in the show notes along with Finton's contact details. And you'll find the show notes on our website, which is www.thesendcast.com or wherever you listen to this episode. So thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, please hit that subscribe button. You can follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at The Sendcast. On Facebook, The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. And as always, I'm going to talk about B-squared, because if you are struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you just want to see what's available, have a look at the B-squared website, or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show the small sets of progress pupils with SEND make. And if you're a school in England still confused by the engagement model, not sure about the pre-key stage standards or anything else around assessment, get in contact. If you're a school in Wales, look at the new curriculum for Wales. We've got stuff for you too. So you can find out about more about our online training courses and conferences, read our blog, watch our webinars. It's all on the B-Squared website and you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes. And you can also drop me an email. My email address is simply dale at bsquared.co.uk. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me and him. Goodbye from me twice. Excellent. Bye, everyone.